0: listening to the Island Christian Church of Holbrook podcast. Today's message, given on January 7th, 2018, is titled, What's the Why? When I thought about this, I said, what is something that I could give you this morning that would help you throughout 2018 and even beyond? And the key is, We want to look at the difference between what and why. And what happens is oftentimes we get stuck at what. In fact, many people start to think and they ask, well, what can I do? I'm not that smart. I'm not that liked. I'm not that connected. I'm not that well-educated. I'm not that good-looking. I'm not that popular. And yet, just like Michael Jr. said, once we find the why, the what becomes more clear. And so that's what I hope we will do today. We will not just look at the what we do, but we will try to find the purpose and the reason and the why that stands behind this. And today we're going to take a look at someone who essentially had nothing. And yet God used the little that she had and did a miracle in fact the results of this miracle was in large part due to how she responded to what she was told and to her circumstances and this is what i want you to take away today when god works even our small acts have significant effects when god works even our small acts have significant effects would you turn in your bibles to the old testament book the second book of kings and we're going to take a look in second kings chapter 4 <clears throat> let me give you a little background here some of you may have heard of the prophet elijah and of course, Elijah was a great prophet, and then it came time for Elijah to go and pass on to the Lord. And so there was another prophet in Israel named Elisha, and Elisha continued in the ways of Elijah, and we're going to have a look at a miracle that God did um, in, in the life of a widow. So let's, let's read, we're going to read the first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read through it and then we're going to take a look and study it. Okay, now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elijah, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, What have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels, those are jars, from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few of them. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. May God bless this reading of his scripture. Let's let's try to understand a couple things because there are some things culturally here that are very different now that we may not understand. Okay? First of all, this woman her husband was a prophet. And this prophet died. Okay? And he must have incurred some debt. I'm not we we don't know how that happened, but in that culture when someone incurred a debt that they could not pay, you or your family members could be conscripted to become slaves. Essentially, you would be in the service of the person that you owed money to until a fair amount of time that was agreed upon based on how big the debt. You were essentially working off your debt for a period of time. Now, the prophet who, who incurred this debt had died, but it was still in the responsibility of the family to satisfy the debt. And so this woman is concerned because the creditors are going to come and take her two sons and have them essentially work off the debt. Now, just as an aside, debt still enslaves people today. You know what I'm talking about? That's right. Okay, now, you know, yeah, you don't end up getting sent off to work as a slave to someone, but when you incur large amounts of debt or even a small amount of debt, you have an obligation and it really can hurt the way that you do and conduct your life. So, just as an aside, you know, um, hey, my daughter Nicole and Jeremy, they're getting married in June and they have a goal. Okay, their goal is to really get those student loans paid down, and of course, there's more that can be done in this time. But I really am pleased that they have that as a focus of getting out of debt as soon as possible. And uh, it's hard to do today, isn't it? Sure is, you know. But still, just you know, that's not the point of this message. But I just wanted to throw that in there that it's important because when you are in debt you are essentially enslaved to someone else. Okay, so anyway, so this widow has a problem. And so she goes to Elisha, who is kind of the new head of the prophets, and, you know, you know he, uh, she tells this story. And look in verse 2. What's Elisha's response? What shall I do for you? What do you want me to do? Now, it's interesting because there was another time When in Jesus' life, when there was a man who was blind and the man called out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus came up to him. He goes, what do you want me to do? Now, wouldn't that be sort of one of those duh moments, don't you think? Right? It's like, uh, yeah, uh, I'm blind. I can't see. Could you heal me? But it's interesting because oftentimes God wants people to be able to articulate their need before he acts. And that's exactly what he's doing in the life of this widow. Elisha is saying, okay, I understand you've got a problem. I understand your husband, by whatever happened, owes money. I understand they're going to take your kids. Perhaps, what should I do for you? Well, we don't know what she says, but look at what Elisha goes on to say. He says, tell me, What have you in the house? Now, this woman's probably thinking, I I don't have much. She is seeing the circumstance from the perspective of want and need. But Elisha is trying to refocus her attention from the point of what does she have that could be applied to solve the problem? What does she have? And I have found in my life, I've been a Christian a while now, and I have found that God usually doesn't just miraculously drop something on a situation to solve it, but he often uses either something or someone near or around us to address the need and solve the problem. And then where the miracle occurs is he goes ahead and multiplies and goes beyond just what's there. Okay? And that's exactly what happens here. So Elisha says, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except, circle that word, except in your Bible, except a jar of oil. Now, oil in that day was not only used for cooking. Um, Oil was a energy source. You know, it wasn't just put in things. It was, an, it was valuable. It was something they, they actually traded and bought and sold oil. And so she says, I just have this little jar of oil. It was probably maybe as big as this. Probably not worth very much. And yet, look at what Elisha did. He says, okay, go outside and borrow vessels or jars from all your neighbors. And they need to be empty. You know, we don't want you to go over and get oil from them. Just say, hey, can you spare you know a jar or two? Or, and but look at the next thing he says: not too few, not too few. You see, sometimes we get stuck in a mindset where we will set a limit that we think, well. Maybe this is where this could go, but anything beyond that, that's just too much. And Elisha is saying, go get a lot of jars and bring them into your house. And so they did that, and he told them, then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. So in other words, take what you have, and once you have all these empty jars, I want you to take what you have and start pouring it into each jar. And, of course, we read about the miracle because she went in and shut the door behind herself. And, you know, I guess this was a private matter. You know, this wasn't something that was, you know, going to be made public uh, until the whole thing was done. And then when the vessels were full, so all the ones that had been brought in had been filled. And she said to her son, okay, bring me another one. Now, there was still oil But then the the son says, that's it, mom. There are no more. And then at that point, the oil stopped flowing. Isn't that an interesting analogy and something that we should look at? Oftentimes, the measure of our faith sets the limit for what God does. You see, the way I read this is if they brought in more jars, the oil would keep flowing. Regardless, there was enough oil to accomplish the task that God wanted to do, okay? And how do we know this? Because in verse 7, she went back to Elisha and said, Elisha, you know, this is a miracle. She told Elisha, like, what happened? And then he said, all right, here's how we're going to deal with your situation. You're going to go and sell all these jars that got filled up so that you can pay the debt, and then whatever's left over, now you and your sons are going to live on that. Isn't that a great, that is a great, great miracle. So, remember that video clip? We need to look and say, well, what's the why here? Okay, we see the what. The what is that God did a miracle, but what's the why here? I think when God works... Even our small acts have significant effects, even though we might not always see them at first. So let's look at what we have to do, however inconsequential it may seem, and expect to see how God will use whatever we bring to him. See, some of us kind of look at the, all the stuff I don't have or all the things that disqualify me, or all the circumstances that are impeding us from doing something, right? You know, I mean, you know, I I used to be an engineer, and my job was to make things work, okay? And engineers tend to find all the reasons why something couldn't work so that something doesn't fail in a catastrophic way. Right, Peter? You know, if you're designing a bridge, you know, you want to make sure that that bridge holds up, right? Absolutely, Absolutely, you know. Or that plane, you know. You don't want the guy, you know, to be a freewheeler who designed the plane that you're going to get on and fly, you know. No, we want people to be careful. And, you know, so I'm not saying we'd be willy-nilly and stupid about things, but there is the principle here of taking what we have and putting it in the hands of God and seeing what he can then do with it. Just like this hap- what happened with his widow. You see, most people stop with the what. But we need to find the why. And for someone who follows Jesus, the why has very special significance. Okay, turn in your Bibles, let's go to the New Testament, to John chapter 15. This passage occurred just before Jesus was going to the cross to be crucified. Okay, and so he's meeting in the upper room with the people, the the disciples, the apostles who followed him around for the last three years. And he's getting them ready for him going to the cross. And this is part of his preparation and what he's telling them. And he's also telling us the same thing today. We're going to read in John 15, starting at verse 13. He says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide or remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's take a look, and there's at least three things in this passage that I want to draw your attention to because I think they help us understand the why. Okay? The three things here, the first one is he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Understand, whenever Jesus wants us to do anything, We have to remember that he loves us. And he demonstrated it by laying down his life, by going to the cross so that you and I could have our sins forgiven because we cannot pay for our own sins. It is impossible. It required somebody else to come and pay for our sins to restore a relationship between a holy God and sinful us. Okay, And Jesus demonstrates his love by going to the cross. For the why, understand you are deeply loved by God. If you ever doubt that, just think about the cross. In fact, today at the end of the service or after the message, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay, And that is a great time to remember and to reflect on what Jesus did and to remember that we are deeply loved by God. That forms, that begins to form the framework of the why, for why we should do the what. Okay? The second thing in there is he says, well, he loves us. He goes, you know, you're my friends. I don't call you just servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus is revealing stuff to us. And not only is he making stuff known to us, but he knows us. Jesus loves us and he knows us. Okay, that is so key. He is not just some deity far off and disinterested in the lives and the work of the people. He loves us, and he knows us. That should form part of our why as well. We are deeply loved, and we are known by God. And then the third thing in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He loves us, he knows us, And he chose us. He picked us to come into his kingdom. Now, quite frankly, I don't really know how that works. And someday we'll get told how that works. But the bottom line and the thing that is so important is that that's how it works. If you have come to faith in Christ... God has chosen you from before you were even born. It's not because of anything that you did. It's not because, you know, you're you're a great athlete or you're a smart person or you did well and, and you made a lot of money. It's not because of anything that we did. It's he chose us so that he could get glorified by picking us. And that is awesome Because all of a sudden, that shows that it's not dependent upon me, but it's all an act of the grace of God. He chose us not because of righteous things that we have done. He chose us because of his mercy. So that is just awesome. And that should set the framework for this year. Okay? So when you start to think, Ah, uh, what can I do? You know, we start to get into the widow's mindset. We look at, remember that word I had your circle? Accept. What do you have that God has given you that you can return to him in a way that he can then bless you and others through that? Just like with the oil. Okay? And, So this year, don't look at what you don't have, but look at what God has given you and how you can use that in a way that he will be glorified by it. So the framework of why for the year is we are loved, we are known, and we are chosen. Being loved, known, and called by God forms the basis for our confidence in the world. Because confidence in ourself has a limit. Because I have a limit. Each one of us has a limit. We have things that we're comfortable doing, but right, but then, you know, and each one of us has a different point. And you know where that point is in your life. All of a sudden, you know, you're like, okay, we're good. I've got this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking. I'm good with this. Okay. Then a curveball. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm still good. But each one of us has some point in our life where when we go a little bit beyond that point, we lose our confidence, right? right. But the why is that God loves us, he knows us, and he chose us. So if he's going to try to push us a little bit beyond that, he's going to get us through that. And he is going to complete the miracle just like he did in the life of this widow. You don't have to turn there, but in same Gospel of John in chapter 20, Jesus says this in 2021, and this is the night that he rose from the dead. You'll remember, he rose from the dead and he appeared to Mary, but then he didn't see the disciples until later on that night. They were in an upper room, the room was locked, and Jesus miraculously appeared to them. And this is what he says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus was sent to the world to reconcile the world to God. And even As he was sent that way, he sent his disciples out that point and indirectly he's sending all of us the same way. You see, sending is if, you know, John in his gospel, his favorite designation of Jesus is that he is the son sent by the father. And there was a familiar concept in Jewish life, that the messenger is like the sender himself. So Jesus is the sent one, and then he in turn sends his disciples. Now this is key because being sent implies that the commission, the charge, and message are issued by the person who sends rather than the one who is sent. Okay? So, so the message of Jesus didn't come from within himself. The message of Jesus, this is the design of God the Father. And Jesus was obedient to it. And so when he in turn sends people out, it's not up to us to figure out the commission, the message, and the meaning. No, we are sent in the authority of Jesus to be a light to other people. And so he will, just like he filled the jars of the widow with oil. He will fill you to accomplish His purposes when you are in a situation where He has sent you to bring the message. You know, we just finished up the Christmas season, and one of the phrases that we really looked at a lot in the Christmas season this year was Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? And then also in the great commission, in the end of Matthew, just before Jesus is about to ascend, he says, I am with you always, okay? I am with you, God with you, okay? And so there's this idea of, you know, this connection. And when God works, even our small acts have significant effects, so, this is what I'd like you to do with this, what we talked about. I want you to find your why. What's your why? We all can answer pretty much the what. You know, you ask a guy, hey, what do you do? And you say, I work here. You know, I do this, you know. But we we all pretty much know the what, and we even kind of know the how. But sometimes we don't understand the why. So I want you to find Your why, okay? And you might be like, well, what's the why? Well, the why is your core set of beliefs, okay? Now, some of you may know what your core beliefs are, but I think it would be really helpful to be able to articulate that. And I think the why has a lot to do with the fact of we are loved, we are known, and we are chosen by God. And that should be the why, that energies energizes our life and gets us excited about things. Okay? Now, I, I have to ask, because you know, I've been talking right now about us personally knowing our why, but what's our why as a church? Because I think you know, we're gathered together as a group of people. We should really be able to articulate and know, you know, what's our why? Why do we do this? Well. For those of us that were here just before Christmas, you'll remember we I, I talked about a website called MultiplyMovement.com. Remember that? Francis Chan, David Platt, some great stuff. I, I really hope you guys got a chance to check that out. If you didn't, it's a new year. Go to MultiplyMovement.com, one word. Check it out. Go there. It is well worth your while. And so, you know... Say, well, what's our why? Why do we exist? Well, you know, if you were tracking with us, you would probably say, yeah, we're, we're here to make disciples. And, of course, that came right out of the Great Commission because Jesus says, all authority is mine. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And that's good, but can I be honest? How many of you would say, don't raise your hand, How many of us would really, truly say, I'm doing a good job making disciples? I think we all could probably do a better job. And so I want to propose that the reason we might not be doing such a good job is we're stuck at the what. We're stuck at the what of make disciples. But we have to get to the why of making disciples. So... I was trying to figure out how to phrase this in a way that really would help motivate me to understand the why. And I hope, I'm going to share it with you, and I hope, you know, it might help you. Or maybe, you know, listen, the why is not the same for all of us, okay? The principles are the same, but each one of us has a different flavor of why, because each one of us is different. We're not cookie-cutter. I'm really glad. You know, one of the things I love about Christmas is the homemade cookies, right? You know, can you tell? Right? Listen, we love the homemade cookies, don't we? Because you're not just opening some mass-produced box from, you know, Mondelez that says Oreo on it. You know, I mean, maybe you like Oreos. I'm not picking on Oreos if you like Oreos. But aren't, you know, homemade, individually baked? Isn't that way better than, you know, just store-bought open the box. And it's the same way with God, because each one of us is individually, fearfully, and wonderfully made. And so God has wired each one of us a little different. And so it's important that we find the why for ourselves. So this is what I came up with, the why that really helps me understand our why as a church. This is what I came up with. I said this, I said, because people matter to God, Jesus has sent us to make disciples. Then more people will know Jesus and glorify God. Do you see the difference? It's not just like guilt, 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 make disciples. Oh, not doing it. Guilt, guilt. No, no, no. People matter to God. God loves people. God knows people. God's choosing and calling people. People matter to God. So because people matter to God, then Jesus has sent us to make disciples. And when we do it, more people will know Jesus and glorify God. I don't know. Does that help anyone? If it doesn't, find your own why. But that's a why that I can get excited about. It's not just like, do this, Bob. No, it's like people matter. There are people that matter just, you know, within a short distance of where we are. They matter to God. So we need to find a way to make a disciple of them, help them to follow Christ, okay? And, you know, one of the ways we could do this, I think, is we need to find real, tangible needs in the community and then try to find ways to meet them, okay? Because people may not realize that they need to be reconciled to God. I mean, listen, Everybody needs the gospel, but they don't always recognize that. That's the key. And where the church has gotten off track traditionally over the years is some churches are really good at meeting needs, but then somehow the gospel, the good news of Jesus, gets veiled over. And people don't understand that we're sinful. God has sent Jesus to be our salvation. And we need to trust in him and respond to what he did. Because you can have people that have all their physical needs met, but they will not have their soul satisfied in such a way that they can eternally be with Jesus after they leave this earth and die. And so it's not either or, it's both and. Okay? So I think we need to... You know, we, we need to look at this. Um, we're we're studying something as the pastors of the church. It's called um, uh, natural church development. And there's a these people have studied, and there are these eight factors that they have identified in churches that are meeting needs and uh, and are thriving and growing in the community. And the the illustration that they use is sort of like a barrel. You know a barrel that's made out of wood slats? And so imagine a barrel with eight of these things here. Eight slats. And if you have a barrel and all the slats are this long, how much liquid can you fit in the barrel? This much. But if one of the slats is short, if it's only this high, even though the others might be here or here or here, the short slat, sets the limit for how much liquid can go in the barrel. And so that's a great analogy. And so as your pastor, I am trying to find, you know, how are we doing in this? Where's the area where we could use improvement? Because I don't want to have really good some slats and have one that's really short, and then that's the thing that's limiting our potential of ministry in this community. Okay, And I think the one that we probably could lengthen that slat is called needs-based evangelism. It's sharing the gospel, but doing it in such a way that people see us meeting needs in the community and then asking the reason for the hope that is within us, which is the good news of Jesus. I, I read something a long time ago that really challenged me. I mean, this was like when we were first starting this church. And... It really troubled me, and it quite frankly should trouble each one of us if, we, if we're thinking about it. Somebody said this. They said, if a church were to close and leave, would anyone in the community miss them? Wow. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, yeah, you guys, you're here, you're faithful, you know, we would miss it. But would anyone else miss it if all of a sudden ICC or, or one of the other churches in this building or the church up the road, Calvary Chapel, or one of them were to close? Would anyone in the committee in the community miss them? And when I thought about that and I was reminded about that again, I'm like, wow, we really need to see where there are needs and then start to meet the needs so that the gospel can be communicated People can be made right with God, and then they can worship and glorify Him. So that's something that I am praying about. And I would ask you to join me in praying and opening your eyes. You know, maybe you maybe you're just like, Pastor Bob, oh, I see this great need in the community. Well, come talk to me about it. I want to know. I am trying to find this stuff, but you know, we need to do it. But the problem is. Sometimes people will see a need and then they'll be like, "Ah, we're too small. We can't do anything about that. Just like the widow. Take what we have, what God has given us, and then pour it into the vessels that he gives us, and there will be enough to complete the task at hand because he is the one that is filling the jars not us. That's the why. That's the why. So, we might be small. We might feel like the widow we just heard about. We might think we have very little to offer, but I want to close with this thought. An author, Ken Costa, wrote this about the widow. Remember in the scripture it says, she had nothing except, and then I told you to circle, except He says this, he says, the great encounter begins as soon as she was prepared to live by an exception. Every worldview changes when we realize that the facts we seem to be facing and seem so compelling are not the reality that we live in. Right? Sometimes we're too smart. We try to figure it out. And we think, oh, that's reality. But when God comes into the equation, that's when reality can change. When God works, even our small acts have significant effects. Will you let God work through you? I hope so. If you haven't come to Saving Faith in Christ yet, I would invite you to trust in Jesus today. In just a moment, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is for anyone who has put their trust in Jesus. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I would ask you to just not partake right now. But then right after the service, come talk with me. We will pray together. We will make sure that you have trusted in Christ because he invites you to come. He loves you, he knows you, and perhaps he is calling you today.